everybody. We've got the room and we have people in our Zoom audience too. And we're so happy to see you. We're still going to have people dribbling in because as uh, you all know, it is UN week. That means it is gridlock time in Manhattan. Uh, but we're so glad to see you after a long time of not being able to get together. We'll be getting together much more often. So thanks for coming. I'm really happy to have one of my very favorite people here today. Most of you, of course, know Alan. Um, Alan is a, a legend in the venture capital business, um, but he has such an incredible life and he's taken the time. I, I think I was one of the people that certainly um, encouraged him to write the book, but there are a lot of people who wanted him to write this book. And uh, it's such a fun read. Um, it is full of taking life in both arms as only a man like Alan can do, who is 88 years young. 88, 87. Another month before. Yes. He's only 87 <laughs> and he's, um, you know, what going on your seventh marathon this no, year? Uh, sixth. Sixth marathon. Why am I ahead of you here? Good. <laughs> He's um, getting um, working up to his sixth marathon and um, and has just started a, a new fund uh, in the last couple of years um, dedicated to um, businesses for those uh, in the largest growing population now, which is 60 and up. Um, sounds like a winning proposition to me. We hope so. <laughs> So um, there's so much in this book that you, I, I hope you get a chance to read it. I, I actually, you know, not only thumbs through my, 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 this version, but also listened to it on Audible, which of course, Alan invested in Audible. And um, it's such a, actually a rich experience to, to uh, and, you know, have, hear the book that way because it's in your own voice. Um, and it's really a treasure. We get to, you know, see you as I, or listen to you as I'm falling asleep. No, no, it was about, it was, um, what's his name? A line about Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so we're, we're really pleased to, to have you here. Of course, you started with, um, with, with investing for others and then um, started your own company. And then that turned into Apex. Oh, which became a very, very successful company. And then for some reason you left it, you're going to have to explain that to us, um, and started yet another company, Greycroft, um, and all this time doing all kinds of other exciting Age 72, by the way. <laughs> um, so, so let's start with your, with your business side. I mean, I hate to have you, um, you know, pick your favorite child, but um, of all those business interests, which one was the was the most exciting for you? Now I had a, I had a feeling like you. That's really what now what we discussed beforehand. About <laughs> <laughs> Can you hear me? All right, everybody. Yeah. Sorry, right. sorry, right, online. Uh, you know, I, I always give the same answer. It's like asking about what's who's your favorite child. I mean, there is. It's very hard to pick your favorite investment. Is your favorite investment the one that you made the most money in? Is it the one that was the most successful? I mean, you know. I've identified a lot with Apple, and it's been the most famous, obviously, company I was associated with, New York Magazine, which I think helped put me on the map. Uh, but 
one, that's not necessarily your favorite. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I actually think the most interesting company was a company I think that Rick Reese, I think, may have been involved with also, which was Cellular. You were involved with you guys. Cellular Communications, which got the first license for a cellular uh, company in this country when there was a, it's so hard to believe now because when cellular spectrum is sold today, it sells for billions of dollars. And the government had a lottery, which cost you nothing. All you had to do was apply for it and you would win. You won a, a city or a little city really, or a locality. And we applied and we got at that time, Columbus, Ohio and Cleveland and expanded that and became, so it was, became a company called Cellular One and uh, became a very, very big cellular company. But I, I'm proud of that because it, you know, at that time, Motorola and AT&T estimated that there would be 300,000 people with cell phones. Uh, <laughs> the, pen, the penetration would be, I forget, 1% of something. And today, you know, it's probably over 100%. So, uh, I, you know, I think that's kind of having been at the very beginning of the industry. But on the other hand, you know, being involved with Apple was the beginning of, of an industry in personal computer. Being involved with America Online was the beginning of being involved with Internet uh, communications. By the way, AOL started as a game company. And actually, even more interesting is AOL was bankrupt before it uh, became AOL. Uh, I hope to take it out of bankruptcy. Uh, so that's the answer. But I thought you were going to ask me why I called it. No, no red lights. Well, actually, I, I, we did talk about starting with why you wrote this book and for whom you wrote it. So we'll we'll, we'll go back to that if you're comfortable there. No, I'm comfortable. I no, I I, so I think it's interesting why I wrote this book. Is you know I didn't have I wasn't entitled to write a book. I mean I am not famous. I have you know I'm not a celebrity. I haven't got the kind of followings that some of the people that write books. But I uh, was sitting around and I guess it was 2019 about and I. Uh, I had two audiences of mine. One was a friend of one particular friend of mine was nicely, nicely uh, invited to leave a law firm at age 60. And I, uh, well, I found out later it was 65, but I thought he was 60. Uh, and I said, it's crazy. Why? He was, I mean, all his, he had all his marbles and sharp as could be. And what a waste of talent to, to retire people. And I realized that Apex, I had nothing to do with it. Other people put this rule in that you had to retire from Apex. And it is that today. You have to retire at 60. And I said, it's, what a waste of talent. There's so many people around. I said, I've had the most interesting life. I built my first firm at 36, my second one at 72. And as I, Patricia just said, I just started my third firm, firm at 85. Uh, which is, I think, anyone's capable of doing. And in between, I had a, another career between Raycroft and, and, and Primetime. I had another career in the international field. And I, I wanted to be encouraging to older people, what I call the ageless generation, to really know that they can have an exciting life. And in the book, you will read, if you read it, that I'm going to live to 114. I've been saying that for the last... <laughs> 10 or 15 years. And I've convinced a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> uh, You've convinced me. Yeah, I, I think it's actually probably a good thing to tell yourself. Well, I, I did it because I heard a lecture. Now, now you're going to ask me why I did it. I heard a lecture from a gerontologist at Mount Sinai 
about 15 years ago, who said we could live to 114. The only reason we didn't was because we got cancer, tuberculosis, pneumonia, COVID wasn't there, but a uh, broken hip, everything chipped away. And that's why we don't live to 115. <laughs> and I liked the idea. I had several of those problems that he talked about. And I said, but I still like the idea of 114. So I sent that out. I mean, who's going to argue with me? Uh, <coughs> if, if, if I die before 114, come to my funeral, laugh at me. If you're still alive, that's the question. <laughs> I'll be so, there. Al. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> that, that's what I'm for. And I think actually, if that lecture were given today, they'd probably say 120. Yeah, 125. I really, yeah, I mean, people, there are going to be more people living at 100 in the next month. Uh, are going to live to 100. Uh, at, and uh, it's one of the reasons why we'll get into why I got into primetime, uh, started primetime partners. Uh, the over 60 population is the fastest growing part of the economy right now. So uh, I wanted to inspire people and say, don't give up. At 60, you just about lived a little more than half your life. Think about becoming a poet, become a doctor, become a, become a lawyer, do, you know, or, or, or importantly, go back into the same business you were in that you sold or you retired from and start all over again with the best Rolodex and attract people who worked for you before you've got the money to start, go start another business again. And so I wanted it honestly be an inspiration to people. At the same time, I've had, I don't want to say hundreds, but it probably is a hundred at least of young people who've worked for me over the last 50 years. Uh, and I have seen around so many young people that live very unidimensional lives that they really don't, take advantage of things that go right in front of them, whether it's politics or collecting classic cars or collecting art or uh, getting interested in poetry or doing something. And I said, you know, I'd love to inspire young people if they knew about my life and all the things I've done, that maybe they would say, you know, I could, this is interesting for me. And I got a wonderful letter from, I won't, sometimes I'd say it was from, but for a very prominent, uh, head of a publishing firm recently, a woman, husband and wife owned this company. And she said, I loved your book. Uh, she named her husband. It's called Jim. Jim and I really found it really very inspirational. These people running a big publishing company. But in addition, I loved it for my three sons because it really tells them some things about what they could be doing in no, their lives. It, that, it's extraordinary. So that's, you that's you have so much advice in that book. So many good tips, not only in business, but in life. But your life is so rich, so full. Um, it, you've done all these things in business, including, I guess there were some things that you 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 regret not investing in. I, I think. Well, everybody, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, the book does not just talk about all my successes. It talks about a lot of failures. Well, you mentioned you mentioned your book, Starbucks. But you didn't quite see the, the coffee shop. It's appropriate to talk about Starbucks because of you. This, this morning, <laughs> I was sitting in the local coffee shop and uh, three guys, for those oh. who live in New York, and I'm looking out the window from my uh, banquet where I was, and Patricia walked by going north. And then she walked by going south. <laughs> and uh, I, I tell the story in the book that the great miss, I, one of the great misses I had was Starbucks because when I heard about this chain of three coffee shops in Seattle and 
invest in a chain of coffee shops. And this was 1983 or four. I, I tell the guy who was in our LA office, no, sorry, San Francisco, I think it must be crazy. I mean, there are coffee shops on every single block in New York. Why would you want to venture capital invest in coffee shops? Well, I obviously was too parochial. I didn't get on a plane and go out there and see it, that it was really more a way of life than it was a coffee shop. And unfortunately, he didn't explain, but I'm going to fault him. I fault myself. Uh, but, uh, you know, in this business, you miss lots of things as life goes on. So I. I well, know. I think you made up for it <laughs> with all, all of your all of your hits, not, not just misses. But you also, it's it's interesting that you also did so much outside of business. I mean, your energy is phenomenal. What you do in business would be phenomenal. Where's people out, right? <laughs> I know I can keep up with you. Um, but what you do outside of business um, is extraordinary. And I, you just talk about that a little bit because you, from uh, philanthropy and charity to theater to music, where you first tried to be an impresario at a very early age, and then say, maybe that's not your business path. That's why I failed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you, uh, you know, you got involved in politics. <laughs> so which ones of those would you say is your, was your favorite outside of this? Actually, the most interesting uh, part of it, Patricia Bryant, I mean, I, that's what I was getting at. I mean, if you're curious and you're interested we all have these opportunities and unfortunately it goes by fast and you don't grab it when you can. You know, I, I only know the word yes. I don't know what the word no is. And I, I try to indoctrinate people in that and, and exploring and going and meeting people and trying opportunities. The thing that interests me probably, you know, aside from my business career is uh, after when I left Apex, you asked that question. I left Apex because I started this as a venture capital operation with uh, a fund of two and a half million dollars. So when I left, we had 30 billion under management. And today they have $75 billion under management. And uh, actually, I'm very proud. In fact, I'm not involved at all, uh, except as a friend of the firm. Uh, next two weeks, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, at MoMA for the firm here and was celebrating at the National Gallery in London uh, a week afterwards. Uh, but it had really morphed into uh, an area that really didn't excite me anymore, which became a private equity firm. And private equity is very different than venture capital. They get lumped together, but private equity is really financial business. It's understanding numbers, put the, those who are not financially discounted cash flow, uh, figuring out multiples of earnings and such. Whereas venture capital is really getting excited about ideas and about entrepreneurs and founders. And uh, I was really very excited about that all my life. And I could see that that phase of the APEX really not, you know, we had other people besides me and the other partners, you can make a lot more money in the private equity business unless you hit something really gigantic. Uh, I always tell the people in APEX they can make more money one investment that the entire great crop portfolio could make because you're investing different size size capital. Um, and uh, so I decided, I and it was a time of the bubble, which you all heard about. It was really rough in the venture bed business. So I decided to take some time off. I was only, you know, 
my early 70s. And uh, I started thinking about what I wanted to do for my next chapter. And uh, I went down to see Jim Wilkinson at the World Bank, who was running for president then, and said to him, you know, I think maybe I could take my experience in domestic activities and look, we had foreign activities in Apex. Apex is in London, Paris, Madrid, Munich, Zurich, China, India. Uh, but maybe I could be helpful in the developing world. And he said, contrary to what I thought, he said, we need somebody. And I was going to do it on a pro bono basis. So I went to see the president of the IFC and I thought he was going to kill it. You know, the boss says something, the next guy says, sorry, we don't need you. Uh, he was very excited and it began a four year uh, uh, section of my life when I traveled around from uh, uh, the headwaters of the Amazon to China, India, the remotest parts of India, uh, Af all over Africa. I've been just, I, I just counted the other day. I've probably been, I think I counted and marked them down. In this I think I've been to 102 companies, countries, countries. That's uh, in uh, those four years? Yeah. Yeah, well, primarily, yeah. That's, well, that's I've been to Cuba since. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, was, is that the time when you also became an advisor yes. to the president? Yeah, I was going to say, oh. and during, no, President Nigeria. Nigeria. And during that time, I became president of Nigeria. Should I tell the story about that? I think it's great. Yeah, I, I, I became advisor to the president of Nigeria because I was sitting at a dinner that was run by Citibank, and I was seated next to the president of Nigeria and all his finer president of Basenjo. And he said to me, have you ever been to Nigeria? And I said, yes. He said, thinking I'm going to, you know, say something. I, he said, what did you think of it? I said, it's a shithole. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he was taken aback. And I said, I had gone there under the auspices of the IFC. And I said, well, what could you think of a country when you get there? Every place you go, you've got an, there's an armed guard. When you go through the streets, the potholes are like you would think that someone had bombed it. The holes are so big. There's garbage every place you look. And when you when I went to leave, they we had to leave three hours early because we had to take a diversionary route so we wouldn't be attacked by marauders. I said, not exactly an exciting place to go. This was Lagos, by the way. And so he said, oh, that's terrible. He said, will you write me a letter about this? So I went home thought about it, talked to my wife, you know, should I really do this? But I'm not going to say quite literally, but I, she said, you know, if he wants it, write it to him. So I wrote him this letter nicely and told him why I thought it was a very difficult situation for him to promote business or travel. It's not exactly a tourist destination. <laughs> so about two or three weeks after that, I get a letter from him. Dear Mr. Patrick, Huff, thank you very much for your input. Uh, clearly, you went to Nigeria under the wrong auspices. You know, the World Bank, the president. Uh, you did not see the best of our country, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Please come and visit me sometime in Lagos. I'm sorry, in Abuja, which is the capital. I felt like two cents. Really, I felt, gee, why did I write this stupid letter? And he's now, you know, I, I insulted him clearly. And about Two months later, my secretary says to me one day, uh, President Obasa Joe's on the phone. He gets on the phone. He says, Alan, you're just my kind of guy. He said, I'm so glad you sent me that letter. I want you to be on the president's advisory council. 
and would you come over? It'll take you twice a year. You have to go to Nigeria. And I realized that the letter had not been written by him. The letter had been written by some assistant secretary. And for four or five years, I traveled to Nigeria. I don't think even my closest friends knew I was going. Not that I did it in secret. I just that no one even thought about the fact that I was getting on a plane and going to Lagos. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was a great experience. The only thing is just to end this story there is every when I went there the first time, by the way, the president of Shell, the president of Siemens, the president, I mean, he had like four or five presidents on his advisory board, president of uh, CNBC, yeah, CNBC. I was the most lowly person on this thing. Uh, but he said, Alan, tell them about your experience in Lagos. <laughs> so I tell, he used me as a show card. He said, we've got to do something about it. And two or three later, years later, we we're still doing it. And one day he said, I'm going to call it the governor of, of Lagos to come and hear this story. I said, enough. I've told this story enough times. And he brought the governor of Lagos up. And this is the end of the story. And after the end, he said, look, let's face it. We're in two different parties. You don't want to help me. and I don't want to help you. But why don't we try to do something? You take care of transportation. I'll take care of security. You take care of the garbage. I'll take out whatever was left. And uh, so that's my great memory of my, my time. And that's a pretty unusual thing to, to have done. But it also takes us to an, um, another thing, another interest of yours, which is U.S. politics and, and some work with some presidents here. So um, you have been involved with Clinton mm -hmm. with, uh, in two, two elections. You're involved with Biden, certainly, early on. Um, Very early. <laughs> but, but I have to, and of course, Hillary. Um, what's your advice about people who want to get involved in, in politics in that way? Oh, my advice is the reality. The reality is that most of us who try to get involved come into the financial world. That's the entry point. And you have the political people, the policy people, who strategists, and they look good this day with people who come out of the financial or business world, no matter what you say. And therefore, they're not exactly warm and welcoming. I mean, I, I believe I had no advocate. I, I had a great relationship with lots of people. But at the end of the day, they went their own around. I was very fortunate in the fact that I am one of the few people who got involved in politics. And I couldn't say that this, this if it wasn't true. I never asked for a single thing. I had no interest in being an ambassador. I didn't want to go to Washington. I, I did want to be on a council or a commission that would give me a reason to go to Washington half a dozen times a year, because I think being involved with Washington is an interesting uh, part of your life. And, uh, but there are hundreds of commissions and boards and everything. So that, you know, that's not a big deal. Uh, and I have done that. I, did, I was on the board of the Millennium Challenge account for two terms. I was president of President Obama's, uh, president Obama's uh, Global Advisory Board uh, on Foreign Development, uh, which is where I spent most of my interest. Uh, but I think that if you get involved in politics, or to get really, I think everybody should get involved. That's my first uh, measure. And not just peripherally and give money, but get involved in campaigns. 
uh, Patricia won't say it, but Patricia and I campaigned uh, thanks to Richard. 22 below. Yeah. Right. Oh, in Iowa first. Yeah, in Iowa, in Iowa, and then we did it in Florida. Uh, it, uh, it didn't help. I remember it said penis. I can't remember. Uh, okay, near Orlando. Orlando. Then it's Red Hartford. And I, I, and I remember during Hillary's campaign, I campaigned in Iowa. Oh, it was so cold with Robert Duke climbing. If you any of you knew Robin Duke, who died at age 90 something, she was fabulous. And we were climbing the stoops of remote uh, suburban houses in the, outside of Davenport. But so get involved. You know, I've been campaigned in New Hampshire. I've campaigned in Philadelphia. Uh, campaigned for John Kerry. I've campaigned for <laughs> uh, Stanley, and I campaigned in New Hampshire for uh, West Clark. Uh, uh, so I, I think if you're going to get involved, it's a good idea for young people, particularly. It's part of what I'm saying. They should get involved early on, and uh, you know, try to have some input. I actually feel I had some input in the 93 uh, tax bill I had formed during the 92 election, something called Entrepreneurs for Clinton Gore, and we formed some issues, and out of it came some of the things that affected the tax, the tax bill. Uh, and uh, actually, the other two people I did it with were uh, Nancy and Miles, Nancy Rubin, and Glenn Hutchins, who and Glenn went into the administration actually, and, and Nancy, I think, became a, what they call ambassador to the UN or something locally. So, um, uh, but they they were part of the group that formed this, and it became that, which was very very satisfying in, in hindsight. But uh, I, I think it's hard to get involved in the in the business, the in the developing strategy. Although you can make every attempt, but I think you know. Being involved, and I've, I've met a lot of people who I see to this day, and I feel very comfortable in almost any political environment, admittedly uh, democratic, I have to say that, uh, but I know some Republicans too. Uh, so I think being involved in politics is a good thing for everybody. It's absolutely critically important to be involved, for, and we're so grateful that you were involved. Um, but you also had some, and we're going to you know, leave time for, for, for uh, conversations and, and, and questions here, but um, you also um, had some tough parts of your life that you, you wrote about in your book. Um, I was surprised. I did not know that you had a child that had fallen into a pool that you ended up resuscitating. That's one of those accidents you hope yeah never of course one of those close calls no, if you no. just you know thank god i had a wife who uh had the sensibility of a woman to tell me to go other places to, to, to find things uh to, to look for him. uh but it's fine yeah yeah of course yeah no it's it's it, but it, it's a, that was amazing of course the other um thing that you wrote about in your book which is a big part of your life is your marriage to susan um, which you write about so lovingly as you do the rest of your family, but also about the challenge of having your wife uh, come down with Alzheimer's so early in life. Yeah. And I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to actually include that in the book. A friend of mine, Margaret Carlson, I'm sure somebody knows a writer, uh, said to me uh, when I talked to her about the book, because she I talked to her a 
lot about it. And she said, you can't write the book without having it. I said, nothing to do with my whole career. She said, it did have something to do with it. And people should know about this because, uh, you know, it's part of a life. And uh, my wife had Alzheimer's for 12 years. Uh, she, I guess she got it at 65 because she died at 77. And uh, the last three years, she couldn't speak. And uh, it's it, the, the interesting part about it and it's also one of the things that influenced me about starting primetime partners is everybody in this room is going to have somebody who's going to experience something like this. I just, I, I've been doing this enough times that we all have a sister, a brother, a wife, a grandmother who has some kind of problem and uh, uh, how you deal with it uh, and you know what you do. I tried very, very hard to keep my wife, which is but I'm proud of really, really involved in life. I mean, some of you may have seen her. I used to take her to parties, uh, even though she couldn't speak. And, you know, even in, I don't remember, I don't think we didn't have her in a wheelchair, uh, but she had to be helped to walk in. But, uh, you know, gradually everything in your life goes away, eating, toileting, dressing, speaking, uh, a little bit of every time, every six months or a year, some function disappeared. But, uh, I think that caregiving is a big area we're investing in now at prime time because we're investing in anything for people. We did say over 60 when we started. Now we're saying over 50 because that's about the time of life when people start thinking about it. But the interesting part about uh, prime time is, first of all, over half our entrepreneurs are women. And uh, almost all of them started a business you know, we invest in products, services, people, technologies that service older people. Uh, remember, I said it's the fastest growing part of the economy. And uh, so uh, it's been started by someone who had a problem someplace, and mostly women uh, who had to take care of someone who was aware of some problem uh, that uh, was front and center in their lives. So no one has to show enhancement. Again, it's going to, it's going to, I can tell you, it's going to hit, hit everybody. Well, I, I thought it was a wonderful, beautiful part of your book and really shows your humanity. So I'm, I'm, I'm and it's also great life lessons because it's not all being on top and being a, a, such a success as you have been. Um, it's also those tough moments. Um, but the, the great thing, I mean, I do love the title of your book and I like the whole theme of sort of an on the road theme that you, that you put in there. So you want to address that a little uh, bit? I, I, that deserves the, the, the uh, I was, I wrote the book. I wrote the book uh, sitting around the house in the country in longhand. I'm very old fashioned on yellow lined paper. I wrote 80,000 words, which was too much. And I got it typed and uh, retyped. And then I went to an agent, publisher, and, and uh, my agent said, you ought to have someone help structure it. So I got a person, she's credited in the book. Her name is Laura Starita. Uh, she lives in Baltimore. And before COVID, we started over Zoom working on the book. And uh, the title, I take full credit for it. I'm very proud of it. it was, absolutely a phenomenal title and i think it's not going to become like refrigerator but i think or or uh, uh you know whatever household word you want to say my ipad uh 
I've heard people saying already, remember, no red lights. You know, it's when they talk to their child and say they say they can't do something. Say, just remember, you know, no, they don't say remember Alan Patrick. I spoke, but no red <laughs> lights is, is how you live your life. Stop, stop having, you know, stop signs. And uh, so I had the title. And so this person who helped me structuring the book, uh, because the book does not go logically from A to B to C to D or from one to, to 10. It goes all over the place. It goes from politics to financial to international. And so it's, it's honestly, if you read it, it, you'd say it's a little disjointed. <laughs> but she came up with this idea, no red lights, it's driving a car. So every chapter is making a wrong turn, making a U-turn, making a left turn. Side trips. Side trips, uh, stop left. And it, 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 it works so well because it takes you into a totally different place and it, it, it lets you, you know, wander. So that's, that's how the title got. And the title is about live your life with no red lights and, you know, think positively, expose uh, yourself to everything. Your optimism in that book is palpable. I mean, there's optimism in every page. And I think that's one of the things that's so inspiring about it. Um, but in of all the advice in there, the two takeaways for me that I thought were really important was that you really stress the importance of curiosity, of learning, of reading, of knowing your topic, whether it's your your business or your artwork that you collect. You get to know the artist, not just read about them, but you go to their, their um, studios. You really become infused with all of this in a, in, in a deep way. And it also enriches your life experience. But the other thing that I, that you, you really stress, I thought was really wonderful is the importance of relationships. Um, that it's, it's not never drive alone. I think that was one of the <laughs> your subtitles um, that it's how important it was and is to you to meet new people in every walk of life. Um, your trainer, your, your, you know, the people who, in you met. who became my trainer, um, <laughs> put, me no in, more, no put me in traction, but um, <laughs> no, um, but you know, the, the whole notion of that you, you know, do have to return calls and get to things that, that you, that people have asked of you. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that was really two of the most. You're important. asking good questions, Patricia. I've got a, lot, <laughs> a lot of these. Uh, uh, I uh, believe in a couple of things. One is that life is cumulative. You know, I raised my last fund, primetime, in three months. And uh, most people raise funds. It takes a year. Certainly, it's in the first time fund. This was a first time fund, a new idea. It takes a year, right? Okay. More than a year, probably. Probably more than a year. Yeah. Years. And it took three months. And people said, God, you raised it. And I say to them, which points 50 years in three months. <laughs> and if you think that way, you realize life is cumulative. It's not, you know, about today. It's about, you know, all the things you do on the way and the reputation you build up. About four or five years ago, I wrote a blog. And the title of the blog was... Uh, you don't remember me, but, uh, and the reason I wrote this is because every single day of my life, actually it hasn't happened today yet, uh, someone may come up to me and, say, and they'd say to me, 
you don't remember me. You remember? But I met you 30 years ago. Uh, you answered my phone call when no one else would take my call. You wrote me a handwritten note when my mother died. You And it's this point that everything you do along your life and who you're sitting next to, who you meet. And uh, in my business, you're saying no uh, many times a day, you know, you, because you're turning down most deals that come to you in the venture business. And how you say no to people, believe they do not forget, because no matter how crazy their idea is, to them, it's their child. And so you want to treat people nicely. And you, I mean, I return every phone call in 24 hours. Uh, when you start those kind of practices, and that's the kind of things for young people that are in the book about how you live your life and how life is cumulative. Uh, and I carry it through the point where if you have, for those who are in business, when you go to a conference, you go to a meeting, if there are more than one person from the firm, the four people from your firm always sit together. It just, it, I, you, it's just insecurity or comfort zone. And I have a terrible habit of going up to the floor and say, go there, you go there, you go there and go meet some new people. Uh, and, you know, every, you know, here tonight, everything's an opportunity to meet new people. I'll tell you a little side, side story, which ties into that. I just came back from four days at Burning Man. One of my friends who I knew beforehand is here, who was at Burning Man with me also, not with me, he was there. Uh, uh, I, uh, it, it's a big deal to go to Burning Man Boy in the desert. That, that's another whole, it's a whole uh, thing. But anyhow, the point, only the point I wanted to make was about Burning Man is I was in a camp with 80 people. Well, there are, I don't know how many camps are, maybe 100. There are 80,000 people, so maybe there's 100 camps uh, or more at different sizes. And you meet a bunch of people who I know nothing about them. There's no money transcribed. Nobody has anything when it tells you who they are, what they do for a living. So you meet this whole new group of people. And I met this whole new group of people in my camp. Everybody participates in helping out. Believe me, you get a lot of sand in you. Uh, and, the, <laughs> and the other night, a guy, I got a text and it said, uh, I'm in town for one night. This is a guy who lives in Los Angeles in New York. And he said, uh, uh, I'm having over some people for the camp. Everybody has a dinner appointment. So if, if you finish dinner, come on over and have a drink. And uh, I said, what the hell, I'm going to go over. So 9.30 at night, I went over 19th Street. There were 25 people from the camp there. And all of a sudden, I realized I have 25 new friends that I didn't know who they were a month ago. And I'm now part of, in addition to all of you, I've got another whole group. The hell with you. I've got another group. <laughs> and I'm sure he is going to, he has these regularly during the year. And it's, but that's how you, you know, life is, like you give, have these opportunities, you either take advantage of them or you don't. And I've taken advantage of them with no red lights. Well, your life is amazing. And I, I want to make sure we get a chance to have everybody in the room and some of our Zoom audience also, um, uh, get a chance to ask you some questions. I did want to welcome Ambassador Bill Lewis. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, so Bill. Easy, easy. And Wendy, so Wendy Lewis, so good to see you. We do have a lot of um, very successful entrepreneurs here tonight. Kate Koplovitz and Rick Reese and 
Um, I, just, I mean, so many people. I, of course, it's not just all Democrats here. We have um, uh, Republicans, Susan Delacrosia. <laughs> there are a few others here. Um, right, the Roxanne, of course. Um, and Bertie may have no idea what people's politics are. You don't have no conversation about politics. I know next year. What? Who's crazy ass on heels? They have a book party yeah. on Wednesday night. <laughs> I know it's tough. Like yeah. And all the side. Rich Richard Cohn, our host. They wouldn't let me get in our thicker yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our host is commenting on the fact that it's New York is in chaos tonight. Yes, it is. It's been. Oh, Richard. In spite of that, we've got about thirty people here. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I understand you have a second printing. <laughs> coming yeah. up. Right? Okay, uh, Marta's asked about um, uh, when she, she's from Poland and um, when the government fell, uh, communism fell, it, somehow or another your name came up uh, in Warsaw. I, I, uh, I was very active in Eastern Europe and uh, one of my partners became head of the Russian American Enterprise Fund and one of my other partners became president of the Polish American Enterprise Fund and I was involved with the uh, fund, which was a U.S. government concept, actually started by George Bush, uh, senior. Uh, and by the way, giving credit, probably George Bush, Jr., uh, started the Millennium Challenge uh, account corporation, which I was on the board of, which was, he is probably most known, is going to have a lasting reputation for the Millennium Challenge Corporation and PEPFARs, which are the two great things he did with George Bush started these enterprise funds in Europe. And I, one of my other close friends was the head of the Hungarian fund. And all those funds, uh, most of them did pretty well. So that's how I was involved in Poland. I never knew about that one. <laughs> Steve, come on in. And oh, you won't you. remember, but <laughs> talk about, if you would, not the opportunities for prime time partners itself. But the segment, what's appropriate for the private sector? What has to be dealt with by government? You've worked in both. I mean, this is a big challenge. Well, it's, a, it's a good question. We do not invest in biologics or pharmaceuticals, or, or do we build nursing homes? But uh, it's a really fair question. I could go on all night, I won't go on all night. But uh, with all these aging population, it it's going to be a big deal when a lot of people are around and they, most people want to uh, live at home. And that's really, they don't want to go to the homes, you know, senior living homes. And loneliness affects people who are living alone and depression. Uh, and so we're going to have to deal with how we deal with that. And we have one company that uses telemedicine to deal with it. Uh, 
medical costs, which I think, you know, we're at 19% of the, of the budget of the country today are enormous. Uh, and every health plan insurance company and the government will do anything they can to keep all of us out of the hospital for even an hour, much less a day or a, a week. And uh, it's amazing all the supplemental activities that, that are now being offered. But I mean, they will, you can, if you're part of United Health, you could get for free, uh, uh, not exercise, training so that you will build stability so that you won't fall and break your hip. Uh, there are remote patient monitoring so that people can keep track of what's happening to you. I will be very specific and it, it, it's just to give you an idea of things that there, we saw a company recently that's doing urine analysis. You know, I had never thought about it. When you go to a doctor, what do they do? They take your blood and they take your urine. It's amazing. And so there are new techniques for urine analysis. So you don't have to go to the doctor to take it where you can take it at home with remote sensing. Uh, so we have to come up with ideas that are going to uh, reduce the cost of medical costs and, and make people comfortable living at home and have facilities that are things that people are, you know, happy to, to be part of. And, uh, uh, you know, at the same time, which we're not doing is obviously we need more research. I mean, Alzheimer's does not get a, a lot of research money. Cancer does, but not even Alzheimer's. That's uh, shocking. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, no, it does not uh, much, much relatively little. So I think that uh, we need more research in the area. And, uh, but I think there are whole new services that, we, you know, new clothing that you could zip and get out of quickly. Uh, Post-menopausal uh, cosmetic companies, the, the, the cosmetic and beauty companies, they want to make you more, look more beautiful, hide the wrinkles, not and, and, and elevate youth. Uh, and But there's, a, let's take the reality, there are people 70, 80, 90, they, they have different kind of needs. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of opportunities in the area. But I, it's early, honestly. I could tell you, there's one company called Papa, which uses uh, uh, college students to go and visit people in their homes to make sure they're taking their medicine and make sure that they're they're happy. Uh, I'm just giving you, but I honestly can't uh, accept that. Maybe on television we heard hasn't been likely a place for mom that's been on television, but you probably couldn't tell me 10 companies in this field. So we're at an early stage of building companies in this area. Yes. I'd be remiss not to ask about climate uh, and a your, from a public and a private perspective, uh, when do you see the role uh, of public and private uh, as it pertains to climate? And I'll be all clear, so we're not like, um, unfortunately, it came, came a little late because I didn't say oh, a word about climate. <laughs> no, but I, I'll give you, I'm going to give you an opinion about climate that is, I have no, no knowledge or expertise uh, about. Uh, uh, I'll give you my opinion, but anyone else could give you the same thing. There is a lot of focus now about climate. It's the whole area of the environment is not one that has been sexy for investors. And it, it's like, uh, you know, impact investing. Uh, it's, there's a lot more interest now and uh, there is going to be 
I think, more measurement. SEC, the SEC is considering, uh, and there it's being done some places where the balance sheets will not just give you the numerical gap accounting, but there will be another line which will show what your environmental impact is, which is measurable. Because you know you read about Exxon. I'm not picking on Exxon, but Exxon says we save so many, uh, uh, you know, so much carbon. But they don't tell you at the same time in every other category that balance sheet, other things they're doing that offset the benefit of what they're doing in carbon relief. So uh, there's going to be a separate balance sheet numerically trying to figure out what the net impact of companies are on the environment and climate is part of that. And we'll see how far that goes. Yeah. Yeah. And then Andy, sorry, we were supposed to go to you before. I said that. What does Lagos look like today? You know, it's interesting. I, I don't know. I have not been back, and I don't think that's going to be funny either. Uh, I haven't had occasion to go back in probably five or six years, but I have asked, and I'm, I'm told it's, it's a lot better. Uh, I, I, I guess I'd have to go back to really see it, but there was a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> Andy? Let me ask about additional thoughts following up uh, the, the question over there about the difference between the profit motive uh, and the common good, if you will. So ESG, some people say that the criteria is not objective. Um, in terms of uh, sustainability, I'm here for the World Economic Forum sustainability meetings. Questions about companies, some say, well, the companies now recognize that it's in their financial interest to help promote sustainability and fight climate change. How do you see the market forces versus what could be done between the governments and private sectors to help drive forward with sustainability goals? Well, I, I think that uh, you're right. That there's a controversy that's developed. There's been, for the last four or five years, impact investing and all the publicity about it. And now there's a counteraction saying, you know, uh, are you thinking of what the other consequences are of doing some of these things? And are they really having long-term impact? I think that, uh, I think there's a lot more awareness of what, whether it's climate or energy or a lot of other areas and sustainability and using plant-based uh, food. I went to the Clinton Global Initiative and uh, I have to tell you, meals <laughs> were served were plant-based. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think last year with no group serving at least went over bigger. Uh, I think we have to, we're going to have to adjust our, our life to a different kind of uh, living. I, I do think, it, interestingly, the one thing about what I'm doing, I think that uh, uh, interest rates, I think that politics, sustainability really doesn't have much, which is good, impact in the area I'm interested in right now because it's going to it's, it's front and center and it's not going away people are you know are really very much concerned with what how they're going to deal with the elderly there's all kinds of longevity is a big word uh, when i started two years ago today everyone wants to figure out how they can live longer we have a, we have an investment in chain of longevity clinics and it's doing very very well Jay, yes. you've got a question, and then Roxanne. Okay, um, Kay Koplovitz, and I'm an entrepreneur and an investor of Alan Knows. Uh, I have a particular interest, obviously, in women uh, who have been your partners, who 
who uh, I think he chose very wisely, you know, Pat, Florida, and Dana said, I think women are, you know, something to do with your success. I, I absolutely, 100%. I mean, I, I am probably, I don't want to take the mantle, but I'm probably a leading venture capitalist who supported women uh, since I started my first partner. We, I started Alan Patrick on Associates, who was a woman. Dana Settle, I started the second firm with, and now Abby Levy, the third firm. And I didn't pick her because she was a woman. It was She was the best person around. And we have backed many women entrepreneurs. Uh, we have a lot of women working in Graycroft and uh, not uh, prime time, which is small, but Graycroft has probably, I don't know, at least close to half are, are women. Uh, I don't know about Apex, uh, how many, I'm not so sure in the private equity field. No, private equity not too friendly. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's happening. You know, uh, I will, on that question, uh, I, there's a lot of criticism about the fact that there aren't more women-backed companies and there aren't more women in the finance world. And I feel very strongly about the fact that it's not that venture capitalists have turned them down. It's that they haven't, I mean, if they come knocking, if their ele- the elevator door comes out, opens up and the next great entrepreneur is a woman, believe me, she's going to get financed if she puts together a team together. I don't care if they're transgender or they're, or they're women or they're they're not black or anything else. People were looking for a good team. What? <laughs> You're a little unusual in that right now. I don't think so. It was unusual in the 1970s. I don't think it's unusual now. I don't. It, it, it's kind of like who takes you to the dance a lot too. I mean, who brings you in the door. That, 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 that's an interesting point. Yeah. I had this debate. I had this debate just last week. I belong to something which is very exciting called the Yale CEO Conference. Well, you are too. Right? right? And, uh, which is held twice a year. And Steve Case was in Washington. I didn't go down, I was on Zoom. And he made this talk about women entrepreneurs getting, not getting money. And I called him up afterwards, because I know Steve very well. Yeah. And I said, Steve, you've got to really, this is not fair because you're, you're being overcritical because it's the popular thing to say. But he brought up just what you did. He said, Alan, it's women don't have the network that introduced them and that that's the missing and i hadn't honestly thought about that and it's a good point because a lot of deals come from someone who you respect and when they bring you a deal you pay more attention if there are women who send women who send women it's not going to happen well we're proud of you for doing that for women and thank you for bringing that up kate roxanne you may have the last question so um my business is garbage and satellites. And pursuant to a company that we're starting, uh, we were in meetings with World Bank and Moody's. And we were discussing your question about how do you quantify? Uh, and at CGI, uh, there also was a session on the S and ESG. And there is a, a complaint from the Moody type companies that it's very wishy-washy and they're working very hard to try and put hard numbers, conversion to hard numbers around that because everybody wants to claim it, the big companies want to claim it, but there's no real criteria. So, I'm sorry, tell me exactly what is your asking, I'm sorry. 
So I follow it. I goal. just wanted to share that there are people oh, working oh. on the issue that he brought up of sustainability. On sustainability uh, and quantifying how it, how do you, what does it mean? Where, where does it impact? What's, what's the value of it? And people don't really have a very good answer. Well, I think we got to find, we got to find measure, measurement exactly. tools here. They got to find it. At the end of the day, everything's ROI. You know, what's the return on investment? And I think if, uh, they can show by saving in certain areas that what 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 the impact is. I think will be a it will take hold. Yeah, but people have to lean on that. And that's Thank you, thank you so much. Um, it's it, 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 oh, Bill, do you have a question? We'd love to hear. What public service action did you take and why? They give you the most satisfaction. I actually think this thing I did in Nigeria. Uh, I. I mean, because I didn't talk about all the things that came up in, the, uh, in this meeting. I mean, it was a, a interesting. I mean, I really, this committee that I've gone to of these five or six advisors, we met with the cabinet every time we came. So I really had a, an opportunity at a very high level. Now, Nigeria, for those you don't know, has 200 million people. So it's not, it's not uh, you know, something with you know a few people. It's it's very, it's a very serious. Real, real country. So I felt I had a, a real impact there. Well, uh, thank you so much again. Oh gosh, Bernard and Denise are here. So great. Well, you're just in time to see the end. <laughs> so we're going to give Alan a chance. He has to sign some books. And um, to some of the people who bought books, who, uh, bought previously, and hopefully some of you have bought books, we'll uh, buy some. We do have some available here. So thank you so much. We're so grateful to all of you. Um, it's, a, it's a testament to you on this um, crowd that you brought here. It's a pretty extraordinary group of uh, successful people. So thank you so much. Thanks for